Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of July 3rd, 2023. In the news... This past Friday marked a grim anniversary for Arizona. It was 10 years since 19 wildland firefighters were killed while battling the Yarnell Hill Fire. Michelle Morisco brings us this story of the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots in Prescott. Hundreds gathered on the lawns of the Yavapai County Courthouse Friday afternoon to honor these hotshots. Doug Copenhaber with Central Arizona Firefighters Pipes and Drums gathered with others to rehearse their role before the ceremony. Our job is unique. Um, It's important to recognize that it is unique and our families are affected by it. We're affected by it. That's why we have to be the brotherhood, the family, the support system for for us. Um, That's what it's all about. Prescott Fire Operations Chief Ralph Lucas warned of the dangers firefighters face. Your duties have been well done. The pipes and bells now toll for you. Then he read the names of the 19 fallen, intoning each with a crisp bell ring. Wade Parker. Chris McKenzie. Clayton Witted. Brendan McDonough was the unit's 20th firefighter. He served as a lookout that day and was the only survivor. He read the Hotshots Prayer, the same he read 10 years ago at the first memorial. Let my skills and hands be firm and quick. Let me find those safety zones as we hit and lick. For if this day on the line, I should answer death's call. Lord, bless bless my hotshot crew, my family, one and all. And then 16-year-old writer Ashcraft took the stage. He's the son of Andrew Ashcraft, one of the Granite Mountain hotshots. Picture a dark room. Peaceful, quiet. Then picture my dad, Andrew. He slowly told the story of the last time he saw his father alive. But he shook me awake and spoke softly, making sure not to wake my two brothers. And he told me, son, you're the man of the house while I'm gone. Take care of our family, protect mom, and I love you. He showed a white bracelet he wears on his wrist, a gift from his dad when he says it's guided him through tough life moments. He gave each of us in our family a bracelet and called them our Be Better Bands. He wore his faithfully as a commitment to live every day of his life better than the one before it. And the investigative report found that the hotshots were well-trained and qualified when the Yarnell Hill fire broke out. It was the first major fire in the area in 45 years. The landscape was primed to erupt. The fire chased them and overtook them as they deployed shelters. The temperatures reached 200 degrees. Radio communications were challenging. There was a gap of more than 30 minutes when the crew tried to get to safety. 
Uh, we need to support our wildland firefighters, especially after the, the end of the season. Scott Briggs is director of operations for the Wildland Firefighters Foundation. It's just like a lot of these guys are kind of cast aside and, and uh, you know, we'll see you next year. And, you know, they're they're going 24-7, you know, 16 hours a day for, for two or three weeks the whole summer long. And they come home and all of a sudden it's like, Cricket. He's seen some improvements in communications, but the stresses of fighting wildland fires are extreme. Briggs said now important work is being done to help firefighters, not only in the wilds, but when they return home. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, reporting from Prescott. In Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Vice President Kamala Harris was in the Valley Thursday, and as part of an effort to illustrate the Biden administration's commitment to Native Americans, she made a historic visit to the Gila River Indian community. Tribal leaders from around Arizona gathered at the tribe's Gila Crossing Community School in Levine. Al Macias was there. Harris's visit to the Gila River Indian community was the first ever by a sitting U.S. president or vice president. So I celebrate, as we all do, what happened at the court. She touched on a wide range of issues pertinent to Native American communities, including the Supreme Court's recent ruling upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act. Let's be fully aware of not only the essential protection that ICWA provides, but also understand that whatever gains we make will not be permanent if we're not vigilant. There are 22 federally recognized Indian tribes in Arizona. They are scattered throughout the state, some in urban areas, some rural, and have different challenges and priorities. Gila River Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis commended the Biden administration's approach with Native Americans. The respectful partnership, you know, tribes have been neglected, have been left away from the table for so long. And it's this administration that has included us respectfully, meaningfully, in making decisions and providing opportunities uh, for us to address the ongoing needs of climate change, of, of protecting our, our children, protecting our families, uh, our mothers. He said the Gila River tribe's efforts to address drought and work with all communities both in and out of Indian country is an example of how Native Americans can be involved in major policy discussions. Well, we're, we're showing the innovation and the true partnership, the government-to-government partnership with this current administration and with the sovereign nation that, that, that the community is. This shows a true respect. Also attending Thursday's event was Thomas Ayuja, the chairman of the Havasupai tribe located in a remote portion of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it took me probably four hours to get here last night. He says his tribe is dealing with flooding tied to climate change. He's working on plans to relocate residents who have lost their homes. It's a climate change. Our, our problem we have with that is all the flooding that we get over the years. Trying to relocate uh, some of the people up on top of the canyon. He says another challenge is improving the tribe's internet service. Ever since we got the funding for the fiber optic, uh, the grant that we received, uh, Working on that right now, trying to get a fiber optic line from uh, Mojave County to, uh, to the rim of the canyon. After her remarks, Harris took a brief tour of a pipeline that is part of a water conservation project funded by the Biden administration's Infrastructure Act. And so this reclaimed pipeline system, this infrastructure, it's going to help to conserve water. It's going to help to address the overall 
conservation of water as we look at you know the the, 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 the critical needs and the levels in Lake Mead and along the Colorado River. Al Macias, KJZZ News, reporting from the Gila River Indian Community. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, a chip maker will send temporary workers to Phoenix to help build a massive factory while the state and city pledge to improve a major road near the site. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports on Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. TSMC plans to send hundreds of workers to Arizona to speed up construction in far north Phoenix. Asian media first reported construction on the chip fabrication facility has fallen behind, partly because there aren't enough U.S. workers with the expertise for certain construction activities. Meanwhile, the Phoenix City Council recently approved a plan to extend 43rd Avenue from Dove Valley Road to the Carefree Highway. State and city funds will cover the $10.5 million project. TSMC has said it will invest more than $40 billion to build two plants in Phoenix and expects to get billions in tax credits under the CHIPS Act. Chris Tinestis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news. Starting Thursday, patients seeking hormonal birth control can go straight to the pharmacy without a prescription. Greg Hawney reports. A standing order from the Arizona Department of Health Services authorizes licensed pharmacists to provide the contraceptives. That's after giving patients a questionnaire on health habits and conditions for risk assessment. The law was passed in 2021, but it has taken until now for the State Board of Pharmacy to craft the rules and move them through the regulatory process. Former State Senator Michelle Ugenti Rita, a Republican, sponsored the bill. It blows my mind and it's sad that, you know, we still struggle with the concept of women women being in charge of their own health care. Pharmacists may refuse to administer birth control if they believe it will cause health problems or is against their religious beliefs. Greg Hani, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. The show co-host, Lauren Gilger, asks how long it will take for the monsoon rains to hit this year. Well, the heat is upon us here in the valley, and that means we are all waiting for the rain. Monsoon season officially started June 15th, but we have yet to see a drop of rain, I think, here in the valley. So here to tell us what we can expect this time around is Randy Cervini, ASU professor and climatologist. Good morning, Randy. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so we had this miraculously wet winter, and we've had a couple of monsoon seasons for the last few years that were really wet as well. What's the forecast? Uh, well, the forecast is the exact opposite of that. We're, uh. we're, we're now looking at a very late start to the monsoon, probably at least another week or two uh, before we get any kind of uh, activity here in uh, the Phoenix metropolitan area. Uh, there just isn't the right wind set up yet to produce thunderstorms. This mm. is normally, today is normally the day we would first expect to see thunderstorms here in Phoenix. Uh, we're not going to see them for probably another two weeks. Two weeks. Goodness. Okay. So we knew there might be a delayed start that I've heard already this year, but what are the conditions that are leading to sort of a dry prediction for this year's monsoon? Well, right now, the, the biggest thing is uh, the, the circulation, the wind flow. Mm -hmm. What we would like to see is good, strong southerly flow coming up from the Gulf of California and from the, the Pacific Ocean out off the coast of Mexico. Uh, right now, that's not the case. We have 
down over Mexico right now, pretty strong easterly flow. Where the, the winds are coming from the east. And that's pushing any kind of moisture and thunderstorms uh, out into the Pacific Ocean and not up towards Arizona. We need to have that change before we can really start to maybe get some thunderstorms here in Phoenix. Right. Okay. So monsoons, let's talk about how they're created, right? Like the, the very big, give us a little science lesson here, Randy. So I know like you have to get those super hot temperatures that we're seeing, you know, in the week or two here now and maybe coming up to get a monsoon. Why? What happens? Okay. Well, the, the monsoon is, is what it simply means is season. Right. What, what, we're, what we're looking at here is a uh, not rain. People, t- newcomers particularly tend to think of of monsoon is meaning, oh, we're, that's a that's a brainstorm. No, mm-hmm. rain is kind of a byproduct of the monsoon. The monsoon is a wind shift. And in particular, what normally happens is that in the wintertime, like we just uh, had this last winter, our storms come in from California. They work their way across into Arizona. As we get into summertime, the, the circulation, the wind pattern, uh, where the upper-level high-pressure and the low-pressure systems are changes so that we start to get southerly flow. We get flow that comes up from Mm -hmm. the Gulf of California and from the Pacific Ocean. As that moves up over those moisture sources, they're pushing in uh, lots of humidity. Uh, And as you know, right now, we haven't seen that. Right now, our our dew points are way, way down. And dew point is a measure of how much moisture you have in the air. What we would want to see to get thunderstorms here in the valley is when the dew points are up above 55 degrees. Uh Right now, they're down in the 20s and in the 30s. So really dry air here. We need to have that moisture coming up from uh, Mexico in order to start to charge up our thunderstorms. Okay. Okay. So hopefully that will shift at some point here. <laughs> but let's talk about sort of the environmental consequences of this, right? Like we have, as, as we said, we got this amazingly wet winter. We've seen lots of good news about the drought because of that. What happens when we have a dry monsoon season? Well, luckily, uh, we we don't tend to depend on the summertime rainfall for getting us in and out of droughts. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, uh, it's rain that falls and then it very quickly runs off so that we don't get a chance to use it. Mm-hmm. It's the wintertime precipitation that is the critical aspect to life here in Arizona. That's why we have all of those diversion dams up on the Salt River is because they hold back water that we get during the wintertime and then we can use it throughout the year. So it's not good. I mean, we'd all like to see some rain and some thunderstorms, but it's not going to have a super big impact on the drought okay. uh, as, as we go into time. All right. A little bit of good news there. Maybe silver lining in a way, in a way. Uh, but wildfires, right? Like this is after a wet winter, we have all this greenery. Is it going to dry out and make those conditions more dangerous? Absolutely. And yeah. we're already seeing that. We're seeing fires now popping up across the state. Expect to see, unfortunately, more of those coming along in the next couple of weeks. And remember, when we get into the start of the true monsoon of the, the th- thunderstorms that work their way into the valley, mm-hmm. the first thunderstorms that we're going to have are what we call dry thunderstorms. They're, uh, the, the atmosphere is not wet enough yet to produce big, heavy rains. Huh. And so instead, what we get is wind and lightning so and dust storms. Uh-huh. And so as we work to way towards the end of the month, we'll have some dust storms coming through. We'll have lightning. 
And it's that lightning that can also start some of the really worst wildfires that we've ever seen in the state have happened because of lightning. Okay. Last couple of minutes here, I want to talk about the climate change question, right? Like we've talked about before you and I on the show, like the climate change uh, conversation around the monsoon season and how it affects it or if it's affecting it. Um, I think we always hear the region is getting hotter and drier. Is this due to climate change or are we just going to see things become sort of less predictable? Um, there, There is a general increase in temperatures from year to year to year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably have heard the news that came out just within the last couple of days that we are setting record temperatures for the Earth as a whole in terms of daily temperatures. Yeah. Yesterday was the hottest averaged temperature for the planet as a whole. Well, a lot of that actually has to do with One, long-term global warming, but two, uh, it also has to do with the fact that we have a developing El Nino out in the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. El Nino is a warming of the Pacific Ocean, and it happens in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, because the Pacific Ocean is so enormous... When you warm up the Pacific Ocean, you're going to warm up the entire planet. Now, that actually is the one kind of uh, wild card that we have in our forecast for the monsoon. Because when we have El Nino, we also tend to have a lot of hurricanes off the coast of Mexico. And if we have some of those hurricanes, occasionally that moisture will sometimes work its way up into Arizona. So we're actually calling for a fairly wet fall and winter as we move into El Nino. Our monsoon may be a bust, but this <laughs> winter might actually be a pretty good winter. All right. Randy Cervini, ASU professor and climatologist, ending on a, a somewhat good note there. Maybe <laughs> not hoping for hurricanes, but what can you do? Randy, thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> and this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news this week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action in college admissions. Here's Mark Brody with a deeper look for Arizona. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision last week that struck down affirmative action programs at colleges and universities has led to a lot of discussion about how or whether these schools will be able to continue to have diverse classes of students. But my next guest believes they will. Jeffrey Salingo is a special advisor and professor of practice at ASU and author of the book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. Jeffrey, good morning. It's great to be here. So what effect ultimately do you think this will have? I mean, it it sounds like based on what you have been writing and what you've been saying that colleges and universities will maybe try to still get the same results, just maybe achieve it in a different way. I think so. And if you look at any of the statements that colleges and universities put out in the aftermath of the decision last week, they all said that they are still committed to diversity and diverse classes. And so now the question is, are the the mechanics of how to achieve that? And, you know, during the admissions process previous to this decision, they could use race as a factor. So there was a little bit of a thumb on the scale, per se, uh, during that. But now they won't be able to do that. So they're going to have to look for other you know, parts of the process that they still have control over where maybe race doesn't come into being, but where they could control the ultimate outcome. So what might that look like? How might they try to influence other aspects of the process while not specifically looking at race in the admissions process? 
Well, I think a lot of this is going to be about the pool of students that they have at the very top uh, of the funnel. You know, admissions is often called a recruitment funnel. They're, so the more students you could put at the top of that funnel, the more students that will come out at the bottom who are from underrepresented groups. So that might look like, for example, partnering with high schools uh, in minority communities. Uh, you know, K-12 schools in the United States, 25 plus thousand of them, they're highly segregated. Um, and so if you focus on and target schools in in, uh, in certain areas, in certain communities, you're more likely to have uh, students of color uh, applying. Uh, it also includes, by the way, not going back to requiring the SAT or the ACT. During the pandemic, you know, hundreds and hundreds of selective schools stopped requiring the SAT as they went test optional. Uh, and as a result, over the last couple of years, many of them saw much more diverse uh, applicant pools as a result. And so it's very unlikely that most schools will go back to requiring the test as a result. It's interesting you mentioned the the SATs, ACTs, because we've heard some critics uh, of the decision by the Supreme Court say that, you know, those kinds of tests and also legacy admissions would maybe be something they would be looking at to try to, as you allude to, sort of increase the, the pool of diverse candidates, which may then allow colleges and universities to have more diverse uh, students there. Yeah, and, and, and legacy admission, I think, is something that they're, they're really going to look closely at because legacies tend to be, you know, wider and wealthier. Uh, and so if they're giving, you know, favor to those students and not able to favor um, students of color anymore, for example, as, as part of this decision, I, I think that, that, that those two things are in conflict with each other a little bit. And I think you saw a number of people last week, including a lawsuit now that has been filed against Harvard right. against their legacy admissions processes. So I, I, I think a lot of schools are going to have to really think hard about that. But schools really do like um, legacy admissions because they believe that it leads to uh, bigger donations and, and more loyal alumni. I'm curious about the increased recruitment maybe at high schools that these colleges haven't been recruiting at before. How much can that really increase the the pool of, of potential candidates? It can, but it is a lot of work and very expensive. You know, University of California has spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars over the last uh, couple of years, over the last couple of decades, I should say, uh, because, you know, affirmative action has been uh, because of a voter referendum in California mm -hmm. has not been allowed in college admissions there for quite some time. It just it takes a lot of time, effort and money. And, and most of these selective colleges have been really unwilling to do that until now um, because they didn't have to. And now they're going to have to. And, and I'm not quite sure you're going to see the impact of that, at least for many years, because, you know, you have to put money into these schools. You have to put, a, a, you know, counselors. You have to work closely with these schools. All of that takes a time. But more than anything, it takes a lot more effort and money. Is that something that schools in a place like Arizona might be having a head start on? Because, you know, we have the similar to California voter approved initiative basically banning affirmative action at universities. Is this something that that schools in Arizona have already been doing? Yeah. And, you know, a place like Arizona State, for example, has an incredibly diverse student body, largely because they've been expanding to have more seats for students who need a college education. I mean, part of, you know, th this decision really impacts uh, the most selective colleges and universities, all of whom, by the way, uh, decide on their own to be selective, right? You know, <laughs> Harvard and Yale and, uh, you know, U University of California system, they all could decide tomorrow if they really wanted to, to put some of their money and time 
to expanding their classes. And, you know, affirmative action really comes into play or any sort of uh, admissions policy comes into play when you have a lot more demand and fewer seats. So ultimately, do you think that classes at universities and colleges will still look the same as they have with affirmative action in place? Just maybe, as you say, it'll take a little more effort and, and some more money for the colleges to make it happen? I, I definitely think there will be a dip um, in the first couple of years, and, and that could even last longer at some places. We saw that at the University of California, where we saw a dip after the affirmative action voter referendum there. And then, of course, those numbers started to increase after that. So I think we're going to see that. I think at some, I, I don't think this is going to be even across the board. I think some colleges that put a lot of effort into this, they will hardly see any blip. Um, but other places that have to experiment and try to figure this out, I think you're going to see a downturn in those numbers in the next year probably the year after, maybe the year after that, until they figure out how to recruit and enroll more diverse class. Is there also sort of a figuring out how to keep a diverse student body while not running afoul of the law process here? Like, if you're not allowed to use race as a factor, even if you have maybe more people of color coming in as applicants, you still sort of have to figure out, right, how to admit them maybe at the expense of other people. And, and, and admissions is a very opaque process, right? It happens behind closed doors. It's a very personalized process. The other thing about without test scores now, it's going to be much more difficult for plaintiffs to prove discrimination. Hmm. They've used test scores in the past cases because they could say you denied somebody with a 1550 and accepted somebody with a 1200. There, there are no other national standards like that because the curriculum in every high school is different. Grading is very different. It's going to be very hard to prove discrimination without that. And so I think that a lot of this is going to come down to what's really happening in that admissions process. Are colleges complain? You know, I'm not saying that colleges won't comply with the law, but there's a lot of uh, ambiguity, let's say, in the admissions process. And I don't think this is going to make it any clearer. Interesting. All right. That is Jeffrey Salingo, special advisor and professor of practice at ASU, also author of the book, Who Gets In and Why a Year Inside College Admissions. Jeffrey, thanks for your insights. I appreciate it. It was great to be here. Thank you. And finally, in Fronteras News. Leaders from the United States, Mexico, and Canada are meeting this week to reflect on the regional trade agreement known as the USMCA. As Kendall Blust reports from our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, this year's meeting is taking place in Cancun. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai joins her Mexican and Canadian counterparts for the annual USMCA Free Trade Commission meeting required under the rules of the trade deal implemented in 2020. The partners are expected to discuss mechanisms to address labor rights violations, as well as the PAC's implementation and how the three countries can further economic growth and regional competitiveness. The leaders are not, however, expected to bring up ongoing disputes, including Mexican energy policies and limits on genetically modified corn, which are being tackled in issue-specific consultations. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, Emocio. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.